1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judged justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Good evening. My name is Josh Hebman. I'm the executive pastor at Grace. And I think every time I preach, you guys move another row back. They just took out the front row this time. Not even there. I won't take it personally. Maybe I should take it personally. We are continuing in a series in 1 Peter called, Where is Your Hope? And if you were here last week, you heard about how God has instituted governments so that there can be order, so that there can be justice. And it is important that we have those governors and that we submit to governing authorities because when we do, we are allowing them to do what God has called them to do. God has put governors in place, presidents, kings, emperors, According to 1 Peter, he has put them in place to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. So that's why they're there. And so it's not true that we should put our hope in any one governing system or any one governor, any president, any party, any platform. We should not put our hope in those things because those things will fail us. But we should, we should uphold systems of justice because God wants to use governments and authorities to establish and maintain justice on the earth. That is his plan. So when we ask the question, where is your hope? We know the answer is not governments, but we know that governments and authorities have a place. They have a role. And also, Peter says, relationships that come right down into your everyday life have a role. Most of us are not going to have any daily interaction with our governor or with our president or with authorities that rise above the, uh, the everyday sort of interaction. But we will have bosses. We will have people in our lives who we report to, who we have to answer to. And so I want to give you some historical context as we start out, specifically for verse 18, because in 1 Peter 2.18, we get one verse about servants and masters, and it might seem like that's the direction that Peter wants to go. In fact, Peter's going to transition very quickly to talking about suffering. So we want to find out why is it, does he, why, why does he do that? Why does he make that turn? Why does he talk about servants and masters and then switch? So I'm going to read 1 Peter 2.18. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This seems like 
Peter, like I said, is about to launch into this conversation with us about how we should interact with people who are in authority over us. In fact, he is wrapping up. He is transitioning out of that conversation. I just said to you uh, last week, we talked about how governments have to be obeyed because God wants to use those systems to maintain justice on the earth. And Peter says, look, it comes right down into the home. The word that he uses for servant here is closer to household staff. There are, in fact, multiple words in scripture used for servant and for slave. And the one that he chooses here for verse 18 is best understood as people who are not owned. They're free people who are nevertheless working in a service role. And that's an important distinction because there are lots of references to people who are owned slaves in the Bible. And in fact, right before this in verse 16, Peter uses that like stronger word we might say to talk about being enslaved to sin or being enslaved to God. So it's not that Peter doesn't know this word or doesn't think that there is a time and place for this word, but he is writing now here in verse 18 to talk about even in your place of work, this is true, that you have to submit to authority. And the reason I think that Peter wraps up here and transitions here is because what he wants to do is to go on to talk about how every one of us is going to experience suffering. Everyone in every walk of life is going to experience suffering. So some historical context, but also some context within the word here. This passage does not imply that slavery is good, that you should keep slaves, that anyone should persist in enslaving others don't hear that. Don't read that. That's an incorrect reading of this text. So we want to be clear about what is this text actually saying. It is telling you that you do need to submit to authorities that God has placed over you, but it's not telling you to uh, buy slaves and maintain and establish slavery, right? Don't read the text that way. It can be applied to modern work relationships because while most of us um, don't work in a service role directly, like uh, Peter is imagining here with a large household and multiple staff piece, people for cooking and cleaning, all those sorts of things. We do serve others in our places of work. So this is, this is something that we can take away. And like I said, we have to deal with the larger context of the passage as well. And what Peter wants to turn to here is suffering. And specifically, where do we find our hope in suffering? Because like I said, all of us suffer. And I know some of you, and I know some of you better than others, and I know that there is profound suffering here in this room and things that you have had to deal with personally, family members. I spent a good portion of this morning talking to people in North Liberty about their suffering as well. It's real. It's every day. We can't escape it. Peter wants to address it. He says, this is a gracious thing, verse 19. When mindful of God, with your mind focused and stayed on God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. How could there be grace in suffering? How can God give us grace and, and share his grace with others through our suffering? Peter wants to tackle that question. So it's, it's correct to say that slaves and masters enter into the conversation here, but that's not the main point of this text. If you keep reading, you'll see that he wants to broaden this out, blow it up to deal with everyday Christian life really fast. So let's see why he does that. Why does he want to talk about hope in the midst of suffering? He's going to use two different examples, uh, three different examples, actually. One is uh, whether, or I'm sorry, when our suffering is justified. He's going to talk about what happens when we do wrong, because there is a type of suffering that comes from making the wrong choice, from making a mistake, from choosing intentionally to go the wrong way. There's a suffering that comes from that. And he's also going to say, you know what, there's also suffering that this, this gracious kind where you're doing the right thing, 
but you're suffering nonetheless. So we want to talk about that as well. And then when it comes to hope, we have to talk about Jesus. Peter knows this because Peter walks with Jesus. Peter knows this because Peter suffers for doing good. You guys, many of you have heard this story of Peter receiving the word from the Lord. Hey, you need to go and preach the gospel. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And what does Peter do? He goes and he preaches the gospel and he's thrown in prison for it. And he's beaten for it. So Peter understands that there is times when you do good and you suffer for it directly, physically. And yet he's saying there's hope there. So let's find out why he says there's hope there. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, please open our eyes. Um, as we were led in worship, let us continue in worship, Lord, to understand you, to have our minds filled with your Holy Spirit, with the knowledge that you would have us possess, Lord, and understand and then live out. God, I pray that we would not be concerned about our own ideas here, but help us to be instead listening to your voice, listening to your Holy Spirit's leading. This seems impossible to us, Lord, to find hope in the midst of our suffering, especially when we know that we're doing the right thing or that we've done no wrong thing. Let us find you tonight, Jesus, I pray in your name. Amen. So that first kind, it's evident in verse 20 here. Peter asks this question, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? It's a rhetorical question. There's no credit, right? There is no good that comes from you doing the wrong thing, you should expect to suffer when you do the wrong thing. That is a natural consequence. God made the world that way. We don't always like that he made the world that way, but that's how he made the world. And in fact, I think it's worth, it's worth digging into a little bit this idea that there's an objective right and an objective wrong, that there's a truth that is real, that we can know. And that's hard for a lot of people. A lot of people are like, I don't feel comfortable with knowing the truth. I'm, I'm more comfortable with doubt. And doubt is important. We have to wrestle with doubts. We can't just say doubts, put them aside, forget about it. That's not realistic. But we can know that there is objective truth. We can know that there are things that are right and things that are wrong. And we can know that God has established systems such that if we do what's wrong, there's suffering on the other end of that. You guys have all seen this in your lives in various ways, and this still applies when you follow Jesus, right? When Brody, who is a real bad boy, for those of you who know Brody, is out speeding, because he always speeds, right, in his minivan, and he gets pulled over, if the cop hears that he's a Christian, is he going to say, well, free pass, you're good to go, you love Jesus, or is he going to give him a ticket for speeding? There's a consequence, Right? It's a natural consequence in our system. There are many such natural consequences. This is not whether you're condemned before God. We're talking about whether or not there's right and wrong and there's real consequence for doing the wrong thing in everyday life. Peter says, if that's your suffering because you're choosing to do what's wrong, there's no credit in that. Understand, you're going to suffer because that's the system I've set up, but also understand that there's no good in that. Stop doing what's wrong. That's not what you should be doing. Instead, instead, you should do good and also know that you will suffer for that as well. He says here in verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So this is the other type of suffering. We could call this unjust or suffering amidst injustice. 
This is what is happening when we do the right thing, mindful of God, endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's unjust suffering. Now, this is the one that's harder to wrap our heads around, right? Most of us know we're comfortable with the idea that if we do a bad thing, that there's a consequence that we have to deal with. But most of us really struggle with this one. How come when I'm doing the right thing, how come when I'm pursuing the Lord with my whole heart, I'm still going to suffer? Peter knows that we are going to struggle with this because Peter struggles with this. And so he tries to direct us through the text to help us to understand what we need to do with this. Here's how we're going to find hope in suffering. We're going to have to understand that there's going to be suffering for doing what's wrong. We're going to have to understand that we may also suffer and will probably suffer when we're doing what's right. And that God is calling us to suffer amidst injustice. This isn't just an accident. He wants to use this. So we have to ask the question, where can we find hope in that suffering? If he's calling us, if that's his desire, where are we going to find hope in that? Because the reality of suffering for doing nothing or even suffering for doing good is that it just, it makes no sense. It makes zero sense at all. And some of that suffering is just because we live in a sinful world. Because our ancestors chose not to follow God because we, given the opportunity, choose not to follow God. And there's consequences for that, right? The the world is breaking because of that. Um, I shared a while ago that my sister was diagnosed with cancer. Her treatment has been going well. People have asked how she's doing. And this morning, a couple of people asked, and I was able to tell them uh, with confidence that she's doing well because she had been doing well. And then this afternoon, she called me and she said, hey, they're admitting me to the hospital Uh, They need to put me in an IV with some antibiotics because I've got an infection that I can't kick. She hasn't done anything to get cancer. She's suffering for no apparent reason, and yet she's choosing to do good in that and is suffering through that. Where is her hope in that? She didn't choose it. She didn't do the wrong thing. And there it is still. Where does she find her hope in that? Peter says, look to Jesus. He says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ's example is where we find our hope amidst suffering because Jesus suffers just like we do. We don't have a record of Jesus being diagnosed with cancer, right? But we do have a record of Jesus interacting with people who have almost every kind of disease. He knows, he understands, he sees it all the time. People are coming to him all the time. People are not even bothering to stop and ask him at some point. They're just reaching out and trying to touch him because they want to be healed so desperately. They are suffering so terribly. And Jesus himself takes those burdens on. He heals them himself. He heals us himself. He suffers on our behalf. And so Peter says, understand that this is how you're going to find hope in suffering, knowing that Jesus, the person, the person who's calling you to follow him, he does all the things that he's asking you to do. When Jesus is commissioned, he's baptized, he goes out into the desert, and he is tempted in all the ways that we are tempted with his eyes, right, lusting after food and after pride and after glory in the world. All of these things that we're tempted with every day, he's tempted with. And then he's 
tempted with the diseases of his friends. Peter's mother-in-law is sick, right? And he sees the despair and he heals her. And then Lazarus dies and he sees the despair and he goes and heals. But Jesus knows, even though he's providing physical healing for all of those people, their souls are still at stake. You guys know probably the story of Jesus um, on the boat in the storm with his disciples, and he's asleep, and there's a storm, and his disciples say to him, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? And the irony there is that they don't even know that their souls are dying, right? They're concerned about their bodies in the boat, and Jesus knows all about their bodies in the boat, but he's concerned about their souls, and he's preparing, he's suffering himself, preparing to give up his life for them. So know this, that Jesus understands your suffering better than anybody else because he made the world and he made it very good. And then when we broke it, he entered into it himself so that he would live the same things that we live. Christ's example goes further. He commits no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he's reviled, he doesn't revile in return. When he suffers, he doesn't threaten, but continues entrusting himself to God who judges justly. This is an important model for us because when we are burdened with people who mock us, with people who treat us poorly, with people who threaten us, we're going to want to respond in kind. That's going to be the temptation for most of us when people mock us is to mock them back or at the very least to get the upper hand, right? To show uh, how they're flawed, how their argument is poor, how they're foolish, to make them look small. Even if we don't exactly come back at them with the exact same sort of weapon, we want to demolish them somehow because we feel better about ourselves. But it's limited, and it's ultimately wrong, and it leads to more suffering for us. So we have to follow Jesus' example, which is to not threaten in return, but to trust ourselves to God, who judges justly. It's a natural temptation. When we are poked at, right, we want to poke back. And Jesus, again, our example, the person who is calling us to follow him, he knows better than we do. None of us, none of us, right, have been beaten and had thorns wrapped around our brow and been crucified. And yet this is what Jesus does. This is the limits of his love. They're, they're limitless, right? He goes to the cross for our sake. So this is, this is what Jesus says. He says, I know that there is a judge and that he has got it in control. And so I'm going to trust myself to that judge. He does this all the way up till the end, even with Pilate, where Pilate tries to free him. And he says, no, I'm going to entrust myself to the one Pilate who gave you power, the real true judge. This begs a question, though, because some of us have been in this position where we have been reviled, we have been threatened, we have been attacked even, and we have entrusted ourselves to God, but we see the person who is attacking us continue to get away with their attacks. So we do have to ask the question, what about abuse? Where can we find hope amidst that kind of suffering? When somebody who has been charged with our care, somebody who loves us or is supposed to love us, is abusing us. How do we entrust ourselves to God in that situation as the one true judge? Because that's even harder. We have to know that he is true, that he is God, that he is the true judge but also that he desires justice. Do you remember in 1 Peter 2.14 when, when God said to Peter, through Peter, I'm going to put rulers in place to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right? 
God is saying, I want there to be systems of justice. I don't want you to suffer needlessly. I want you to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. So if there are people who are abusing you, understand that God has put systems in place to maintain justice and that it is right and good for people who break the law to be brought into account. And it's hard when you are being abused to call somebody out like that, but understand that that is not inconsistent with what Scripture is calling us to. If you need help, please talk to the church. If you don't know even where to begin, please talk to one of us here. Talk to Jason when he's back next week. But don't continue to live in an abusive situation because you think you need to suffer for the name of Jesus. Understand that we do, we do suffer, all of us. We always will. But abuse is still wrong. And there are systems of justice designed, designed for that problem. So don't just allow yourself to be abused. We do want, we do want to maintain justice. God desires justice. Read the Old Testament. He is always telling Israel, you're failing the people with no power. You're failing the orphans and the widows. He uses those two groups as a stand-in for the larger body of people who have no rights, who have no power. And he says, you need to take care of them. They cannot take care of themselves. Don't oppress them. I am giving you, leaders of Israel, power and authority so that you can care for those people. So when you abuse them, you are doubly condemned because not only did you not protect them, right, but you abused your power against them. So know that God desires justice. So when we trust him as the true judge, we also trust that he has put systems in place that we can use, that we can utilize to protect people who are in harm's way. Christ's example also teaches us that salvation does not depend on us. What does 1 Peter 2.24 say? He says, Peter says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is important because in our suffering, not only do people abuse us, but we abuse ourselves. We choose, we choose day in and day out to say things like, I've got this. I can do this. I just need to try harder. All the way up into saving ourselves. And we try to do it lots of different ways. I'm going to save myself by just being better at my job. I'm going to save myself by just being better in my relationships. I'm going to save myself by just looking better. All kinds of different things. And Peter says, no, you've been called to suffer because Jesus suffered. But understand that Jesus also saves you. So you've been called to walk this path with this suffering servant and, and he's going to accomplish your salvation. Not you. Stop trying to accomplish your own salvation. He bears in his body on the tree our sins so that we could die to sin and live to righteousness. It's going to be a temptation for some of you more than others. Some of you have no desire to save yourself. You're not even trying. That's not the thing you struggle with. But some of you, every single day, you get up and you're like, today's the day. I'm going to get it today. I'm going to save me today. It's going to happen. And Peter says, no, Jesus is the one who saves you. Trust him. So our hope in suffering, I've said it is these things. It is Jesus suffering for us, doing what he asks us to do. The best kind of leader, I've said this before, is the person who does what they're asking you to do. If you've ever worked in a job with a leader who does not do the things that they're calling you to do, you know how that grates. Right now, imagine Jesus saying, suffer while doing good, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go over here and do my own thing. No one would follow that Jesus. 
But Jesus does exactly what he asks us to do. So that is hope for us. God, the true judge, establishes and maintains justice. Our systems are always going to fail us. Doesn't matter how good we get it, how right we get it in terms of national government, local government, even church government. Our systems will fail us. And so we have to entrust ourselves to the one God who judges justly because he will always get it right. And Jesus knows this. And so he models that for us. And then finally, he shows us that he is trustworthy, that salvation doesn't depend on us, but on him. So we can stop trying to save ourselves. There's no hope if you're suffering in trying to save yourself. And Jesus knows this. There is, however, one more thing. And Jesus gives this example in Matthew. And I don't know if Jason brought it up last week. I know Brooks did um, in North Liberty. But there's this example here in Matthew 20. I'm going to turn there in a second. And it's important because this is what it looks like ultimately to have hope in suffering. Okay, so this is, this is what Jesus says to James and to John specifically, but also to his other disciples. The situation, for those of you who know um, this story a little bit, the disciples are walking with Jesus, and there's a request, right? Can James and John sit at Jesus' right hand when he comes into his kingdom? Uh, James and John's mother makes that request. Imagine your mom showing up at your next interview, right, with your, with your employer, and her making a request for you to get a promotion to sit at the left and right hand of God. It didn't go well for them either, right? Jesus says, don't do that. Instead, he says, instead, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter, again, understands this because Peter has walked with Jesus. Peter has walked with Jesus and seen him suffer. He's seen him trust God as the true judge. He has seen Jesus die and rise again. And so he knows that salvation comes from Jesus. And so now he understands what it means to be a servant because he's watched Jesus do it. And so Peter himself will be imprisoned and Peter will be abused and Peter will be brought before uh, judges and eventually crucified. And so Peter understands At this point, obviously, he's writing this letter. He hasn't been crucified yet, but he has an understanding of where he's going. He understands what's going to happen to him. And so he knows what this means. And what I want all of us to take away from this tonight as we think about what this means for us tonight is that we are not alone in this. Suffering has to also involve suffering together. Zach spoke about this when he was leading worship tonight. There is a desire to suffer alone that we must reject because it is only going to compound the problem. We're going to have suffering. Jesus said there will be trouble in this world. If the world hates me, they will certainly hate you for following me. Take heart though because I have overcome the world and this is how you overcome the world with me. You serve the world. It's counterintuitive. Nobody in this world is going to choose this path except apart from following Jesus. Every, every opportunity in this world will be to exalt yourself for your own sake. But Jesus says, no, serve each other for my sake and I will save you. I will save you forever. And you will come and I will make my home with you and we'll live together eternally. That's what he's offering to us. That's how we can have hope amidst our suffering. Pray with me. Holy God, I thank you and I praise you that even though we know we will have suffering 
that we can also know that we can have hope in you, in your example, Lord, of suffering for our sake, trusting your heavenly Father, and then bringing us salvation. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to serve one another, to serve even those who would seek our harm. I pray, Lord, that we would be used by you to bring others to know you. Lord, keep us from those sins that lead to us being punished. Instead, Lord, direct us in the way that you would have us walk so that we might glorify your name and bring much fame to your kingdom and grow it, Lord, and see more men and women come to know you and love you and serve you. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.